Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and eclectic autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. Shout out to Costa for this week's adjective. He picked eclectic. <laughs> this week, we are watching The Body Farm, Season 1, Episode 6. We'll be talking about hematemesis, which I always say wrong. It's basically vomiting blood. And all things body farm related. So, let's get into it. We open on a woman tied to a chair in what appears to be an abandoned farmhouse while a voiceover of Eve, our show's pathologist, says, There are two key moments in an investigation of an active homicide. The last moment of the victim's life and the first moment of their death. It then appears that the woman in the chair is then attacked and thrown to the ground by a man, presumably the murderer. Later, the detective and Eve and the body farm team are at a different scene. The detective thinks that whoever did this wants them to think that it was a robbery gone wrong. A man named Mick Flannery comes running in, and they tell him to wait behind the police tape. The scene that the team is at is not the murdered young woman from the beginning of the episode, but it's a man. He was a night security guard named Ray Quinn. They put out a background check with the police, and so there's no rigor present um, so they're still within the first three hours of death, which we do give a green flag for, because that's pretty accurate. Yeah. He has scratches to his face, possibly from branches, but there's signs of hematemesis, which is, Alice said, vomiting blood around the mouth, but there are no signs of blood at the scene around him, and his clothes and boots are covered in mud. There's a lot of traffic in the area, so they need to get elimination samples from the owner and the employees of the garage. So an elimination sample is exactly what it sounds like. It's when you collect DNA from people who you presume to have a reason to be at the scene and they're not involved in the crime. So this, in this case, is the people working in that auto body shop. Also a green flag for everyone processing the scene because they're wearing booties. So good securing the scene and not contaminating evidence. Yeah. They're little shoe booties, which we sometimes wear. Mm -hmm. Usually I just wear my sloggers, which we have talked about. My good old sloggers. <laughs> so Eve can't say whether he's been murdered, but she does believe that he was moved. So it was probably a body dump. He didn't die in the auto shop. The owner of the shop, Martin Flannery, comes in demanding to know why the body hasn't been moved yet. Like, chill, dude. They just got to the scene. Let them do their job. Oh, they just put up the crime scene tape and he's like, all right, why is this body still here? And it's like, he's like, I got business to do. I got cars to fix. And the detective was still like, we'll move him in a minute. I'm like, no, sir, calm your tits. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> and the detective says that they're just about to move him. The detective and Martin go to the office as well as Mick, who we met earlier, and he's Martin's brother. Martin says that three months ago, they took on Ray Quinn as their night security guard, and the brother Mick says that he was against hiring him. He said he had a feeling he was a bad luck bloke, and he thinks he was right because there's no worse luck than being murdered. He's not wrong. I mean, pretty <laughs> logical assumption. <laughs> Martin says that he knows about Ray's criminal history and that working at the auto shop was part of his parole agreement. Ray was involved in a kidnapping, and he was the only member of a gang involved that was convicted. The detective is suspicious that Martin was involved in the gang, and that's why he hired Ray right out of prison. The detective says that everyone is a suspect until they aren't a suspect. I just love that, like, logic. Like, I, yeah, I get what he's saying, but it's just like, yeah, obviously, you're a suspect until you're not anymore. <laughs> Innocent until proven guilty? Yeah. yeah. Right. He is the opposite. Guilty until... Otherwise, he says you're a suspect until you tell me you're not. 
Martin is clearly offended and says when they want to charge him for murder, he'll get a lawyer, but until then, he has a business to run. We see a flashback of the woman tied up that we saw in the beginning, and she says, I'm not hurt. You just have to open up the shop and let them in. They won't hurt me, to whoever is holding her captive. Back in the present day, Eve is leaving the scene and asks Rosa to stay and finish up. She tells Rosa that she wants samples from the floor area, the doors and surfaces, and all the footprints. Eve then asks one of the detective officers to stay with Rosa. This detective agrees and says he's going to the victim's house and that he wants to be kept updated on the postmortem, aka the autopsy. I didn't realize how many people didn't know like a postmortem or a PM. Like when you say it like that, it just means like the autopsy exam. I think I said that to someone the other day and we shorten it sometimes to just say post. Like, oh, we did a full post, which means we did a full complete autopsy. Mm -hmm. I think I said that to one of the interns the other day and they're like, you did what? And I was like, oh, sorry, it's full autopsy, full postmortem examination. But we just say full post and it's, but yeah, I didn't realize some people didn't know like a postmortem. Yeah, I feel like when you say postmortem in some people's minds, that just means okay, they're dead, so... Yeah. An- anti-mortem is alive, post-mortem's dead, that's how they associate it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But yeah, when you yeah. say, like, the post-mortem, you mean, like, the autopsy. Or, like, sometimes they even said it in the show, the PM. Mm-hmm. They would say, like, oh, I'm gonna be doing the PM, and it's like, oh, the autopsy, post-mortem. The more you know. The more you know. So at the scene, Mick makes Rosa a cup of tea and jokingly says he only put a drop of cyanide in it. I know this is a joke, but the lethal dose of cyanide is around 250 milligrams. Also, an interesting fact about cyanide is that to some people it smells like bitter almonds, but some people can't smell it at all. That's actually, so the Tylenol cyanide killings in the 80s, which is one of my like niche interests in history that I deep dive into from time to time. There was, I think, a nurse that was at the autopsy who smelled like bitter almonds during the autopsy and nobody else in the room smelled it and thought she was crazy. And it turned out it was cyanide, and she was the only one in the room who could smell it. And I think the book about that case is called Bitter Almonds. It's either that case or the Excedrin. Let me let me look up Bitter Almonds. I don't know if we've had a cyanide case at work, but I now I'm curious if I would smell it. Oh, I I know I want to <laughs> like don't want to be that close to cyanide, but I'm curious if I'm one of the people who can smell it. I just want to know if I if I would smell it or not. Okay, I I lied. It wasn't the Tylenol cyanide killings. It was a different cyanide killings. It was so the book is called Bitter Almonds: The True Story of Mothers, Daughters, and the Seattle Cyanide Murders, and it's by Greg Olson. And it's I believe this one. Yeah, this is the Excedrin poisonings in Seattle, which happened after the Tylenol cyanide killings. And it was a woman who was trying to kill her husband and she poisoned multiple bottles of Excedrin and killed other people as well. But she was trying to make it look like there was another like like Tylenol cyanide event happening. But she was just trying to kill her husband and she was caught. But one of the nurses at the autopsy smelled bitter almonds and was like, this is cyanide or like this smells weird. And everybody's like, you're crazy. Nope. Nope. No, she's not. (laughs) Mm hmm. So if Rosa smells bitter almond in her tea, maybe she shouldn't drink it. <laughs> maybe it wasn't a joke. <laughs> He's actually He's actually a murderer. <laughs> He's just a really honest murderer. <laughs> you never suspect him. <laughs> you know why? Because he's a white man. Yes. <laughs> he beat me to it. <laughs> the two seem very flirty as they share a cup of tea and Mick asks how much longer it will take Rosa and she says she can't say. She asks if Mick was a friend of the victims and he says, no, he didn't like him but he still didn't deserve to die like this. He then leaves her to enjoy her tea. 
At the body farm, the autopsy is underway. They note scratches on his hands, face, and neck consistent with running through bushes and trees. The bruising on his ribs are in the initial trauma state, and the flare-up didn't have a chance to swell, so he died during the infliction of his injury. So both the bruising still being in the initial state and the injury not having any inflammation suggests that there was no blood flowing, so that would not allow the bruise to progress past the initial trauma state or inflammation to occur because you need blood pumping for both of those things to happen. So it's concluded that he died very shortly after sustaining these injuries. Augie is doing an ultrasound of the victim and says that he can confirm the hematemesis because the victim's lungs and stomach are full of blood. So basically, he drowned in his own blood. Talking of, we always talk about what we think is the worst way to die. That is up there. That's terrible. Drowning is my biggest fear, but now I think this might be. Drowning in any way. Drowning in any way, yeah. Eve asks if the blood is from the liver, and the other tech or doctor, I'm not sure what role this person has, says that it was caused by a ruptured portal vein. So the portal vein is the vein that carries blood from the spleen, stomach, pancreas, and intestines to the liver to be filtered. But the liver was already in a state of inflammation from cirrhosis and was, quote, ready to pop. So cirrhosis is a chronic condition of the liver that is marked by degenerative cells, inflammation, and thick fibrous tissue. Cirrhosis typically occurs in cases of alcoholism and hepatitis. And you know it was cirrhotic liver when you see it. Like, it doesn't look like a normal liver. Like, you know something's up. It's, like, really bumpy, and it's, like, really discolored compared to what a normal liver color should be. It's almost like a paley orange-yellowish. Yeah. They take the internal temperature of the liver, and it is 32 degrees Celsius, which for us Americans is 89.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So given the condition of the body, they estimate that he's been dead between four to six hours. And I'm going to give a green flag for using a time range and not a super specific time of death like they always do in these shows. They always say, like, oh, time of death, 852. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a time range. So what they're basically doing here is they're using algor mortis. So algor mortis is the cooling of the body from the time of death until it reaches ambient temperature or the temperature of the environment that the body is in. I'm trying to remember what it's like two degrees Celsius within the first. Two degrees Celsius in the first hour and then one degree Celsius every hour after that. Until it reaches, until it reaches ambient, ambient temperature. Which is the temperature of the environment. Yeah. They tell the detective this information, and he seems to think that this lines up with the robbery theory as it puts his time of death in the early morning hours. Eve says that this is a possible murder investigation, but they definitely have a body dump. Augie seems to think that this might be a message from the mafia to the owners of the garage, which the detective isn't buying. Augie just seems to seems to be like, I mean, they're all quirky because they work in forensics, and we're all quirky, obviously. That's how we are in shows. <laughs> but, like, Augie seems to be, like, the real, like, quirky oddball of the group. He's the quirkiest. He'll say something, and they'll be like, oh, Augie, that's <laughs> you. <laughs> like, oh, you. There's one part in the show where he's just talking to one of the, like, corpses on the body farm named Tom or something. <laughs> he's just having a chat. The detective drives up to an RV in, like, a trailer park, and the owner walks out and asks if he's lost. He asks the man for Eileen Quinn, who is the mother of Ray Quinn. His probation records show that he lived in this trailer park with her. The man doesn't tell him anything and asks what, it's, what all this is about. The detective says that it's a police matter and that if he must, he will go and get backup. The man says there's no need for that, and he walks the detective into the trailer park. They arrive at Eileen's trailer, and a woman opens the door. There's a crowd gathering around now, because I guess they don't often see police in this area. 
And the detective asks if he can come inside to speak with her, and she says no. And also, like, other people, like, the guy is like, oh, no, you can't go in there alone with a woman. And we find out later this, like, plays a role in these people's, like, dynamics. So he unfortunately has to tell her the news that her son is dead in front of everyone. She obviously is very upset, and people come crowding around to comfort her. And the man who took the detective in takes him to the side to talk to him. We cut back to the body farm, and Augie is swabbing Ray's face and saying that most murders occur in the kitchen or the bedroom, generally in the house of the victim. This is because most murders are domestic, and Augie is theorizing that this murder may have been domestic, and then he was just dumped in the garage. So we have talked about this before, how you are, or I don't want to say you guys, I hope none of you guys are the victim of violent crime, but people are more likely to be killed by someone that they know, as opposed to someone just on the street. So yeah, most, it's a scary statistic, but most murders are domestic in nature. And I was trying to look into if my, my, um... My FBI agent's definitely concerned about me because I was Googling things like how much cyanide is lethal and then where in the home do murders occur more often? And (laughs) so I'm definitely on some kind of watch list. But the only thing I could find was saying that the reason the kitchen might be a more likely location for a murder is because that's where the knives are. So if it's a domestic incident, someone might go to the kitchen to grab a knife. I was thinking bedroom. I think, did he say that was another location? He did say, yeah. Yeah, bedroom. Sorry. Yeah, bedroom. But yeah, I I think I read a quick thing and it was it said living room wasn't super common. It wasn't uncommon, but I think like most it, I feel like living room is more for like home invasions. Mm-hmm. The one the article I found, which I'll have to make a note to link in the show notes. It was a criminologist and he said he believed that like living room was meant for hosting and like the kitchen and the bedroom is where you went to go have like private moments. So it's where people would go to fight because like you're you're having an argument, you're going to like step out yeah. of like a company's view. Even if company's not in there, it's just like habit to like go to the kitchen to have a private chat or go to the bedroom to have a private chat, which was which was interesting. It makes sense. So back in the show, they know the garage is the dump site. So they need to find any indication of what the murder site might be, like trace elements carried between the two areas. So this goes along with the cards exchange principle, which is a staple in forensics. And we've talked about it before. And it basically states... The perpetrator of a crime will bring something into the crime scene and leave something from it, and that both of these can be used as forensic evidence. Augie says that the scratches on Ray's face came from trees embedded with pollen. Eve finds two cuts behind the victim's left ear that don't look like they were made by branches. She swabs it and asks the tech to run it. At the trailer park, the detective is looking at Ray's home, and it looks like a little tidy trailer. The man who met the detective earlier says that he's never been there, but he tells the detective that his mother probably cleaned it for him. The man then tells the detective that, quote, we'll find who killed him and we'll take care of it ourselves. He says that they have their own laws and the police have theirs. The detective tells the man, who reveals his name to be Barney, that... While he is in their country, they will abide by the country's laws. He then calls out to the whole park that he doesn't want Ray's trailer touched. At the scene, at the auto shop, we see Rosa and Mick are still hitting it off, and Rosa is sitting in the car that he restored himself. Then we see a flashback of a girl from the beginning in Mick's car saying that she's looking for her earring. Mick says her earring wouldn't be in his car and tells her to get out. We see Ray looking on in the background during their interaction. Back in the present, Rosa gets a call from Eve telling her that she needs to come back to the body farm with the samples. Rosa gets out of the car and tells Mick she needs to swab him for a sample to eliminate him from the crime scene. He obliges and swabs his cheeks and hands. 
Back at the body farm, Eve is telling the detective that Ray was beaten to death and he was punched a number of times in his ribs, but it was a blow to the stomach that caused his liver to rupture and death to occur. The swabs from the cuts on Ray's neck behind his ear show that they were made by the nails of a female, so there was some type of violent confrontation near the time of Ray's death. The profile from the sample shows that she was a white European. The detective then shares that Ray's previous crime was a tiger kidnap of the wife of a postmaster. It's called a tiger kidnapping because of the predatory stalking involved. I've never heard of that. I'd never heard of that until this episode. Is this like uh like a uk or irish type saying i'm googling it now because i forgot to google it before because the body farm is uh produced by the bbc which is uh, a british channel so wikipedia has a whole page for tiger kidnapping a tiger kidnapping or tiger robbery involves two separate crimes the first crime usually involves an abduction of a person or something highly valuable instead of demanding money the captor demands that a second crime be committed on their behalf whoa the second crime could be anything from robbery murder or planting a bomb oh wow a person is held hostage until the captor's demands are met because on the show they just said like oh it's because of like stalking beforehand yeah like a like a tiger stalks a prey i didn't know that's insane i had no idea this was a thing i have never heard of this all right i'm adding this wikipedia page to our show notes now (laughs) (laughs) so his victim was not harmed and his money was never recovered they got dna from a handkerchief that he blew his nose into and gave back to the victim sorry i just that detail was funny they're like oh he handed his handkerchief to the woman he kidnapped <laughs> like or she he like sneezed and the woman gave him a handkerchief and he like gave it back and she's like oh okay <laughs> thanks <laughs> so ray claimed that he was just the babysitter but he never gave up any other member of, of the gang eve asks rosa to find the source of the pollen they got from the scratches on ray asap augie is going to work on soil samples and the other tech's going to work on ray's caravan The detective calls the precinct and tells him to run the DNA from the fingernail scrapings on Ray's neck wound through missing persons. When Eve, the tech, and the detective gets to Ray's caravan slash trailer, they see that it's been burned down. Barney, the man at the park, says that it's, quote, tradition, and it's Eileen's right to burn her son's trailer when he dies. Eve says she will go to talk to Eileen while the tech and the detective talk to the men. Eileen says Raymond was a good son, and we see a flashback of her talking to Ray in the trailer, and he has scratches all down his face and neck. She asks what he's done and if he did something to a woman. Back in the present, Barney is walking around the trailer park with the detective and the tech and shows them his fighting dogs, which are illegal to have if you don't know that but having dogs fight are illegal it's illegal i thought that was so crazy that he's like here detective come talk to me while the women go talk here are my dog fighting dogs he's <laughs> <laughs> like super casual about it too okay. like yeah dude i think part of it was like he just likes ticking off this detective so he likes showing him that he's like hey i have these illegal things what are you gonna do about it nothing <laughs> nothing Back at the body farm, Rosa runs the pollen samples and Augie's processing the soil samples found on the garage floor and the DNA samples collected at the scene. He discovers that Mick and Martin Flannery are the cousins of Ray Quinn. And I just thought this was kind of funny because in their system, they run it real super quickly, which never happens. And it just shows up as their names, like saying like Martin Flannery, Mick Flannery, cousins. Cousins. (laughs) 
Should we should we add a red flag for that? What do you think? I feel like we should because All right, this is a red I, flag. Because if you're going to compare DNA, you're going to compare the bands of DNA that you would mm-hmm. typically see when you have like a gel electrophoresis and it like creates those bands and you compare yeah. how many bands match up to that. the one that you're like you're trying to compare to. I yeah. Unless they're all, they all just happen to be on 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and that's what they're looking at. <laughs> They've all consented to have their DNA. Or a GED match or GED match, however they caught the Golden State Killer. They're all just on there, and that's the website that Augie's on. <laughs> but there are no DNA traces of a female at the scene, just the DNA scratches on Ray's neck. So they call Eve to tell her about the cousin connection, and she asks Eileen about this. She says that they know the Flannerys, and Eileen says that they're her nephews. A friend of Eileen's says that they grew up in a house, not in a trailer park, and that their father married a, quote, country girl, but she left him a few years after they were married. I found it, sorry, I thought it was interesting, like, so you and I, we hear country girl, and we think, like, southern. We think, like, southern U.S., Mm -hmm. but the way they meant it, I believe, was, like, English. Yeah, because she, like, she pointed to Eve, like, you're a country girl. She's, like, because Eve was, like, what do you mean country girl? And she's, like, like you, and I think they mean English, because they... I like on the countryside, like it's better. Yeah, I think they they were tapping into some like Irish English troubles stuff because I think the majority of the people at this park were Irish. I think based off the name like Flannery and Quinn. Yeah, I'm guessing they were. But when they said like country girl, I think they meant someone who was like born and raised English, which I'm just totally guessing. I'm just putting together context clues. But I thought that was interesting because when she said that, she's like, he, he married a country girl. I was like, a southerner? <laughs> Cowboy boots? Like, <laughs> what? Like, is, he, is he in Tennessee? Like, what's he doing? And, and, I, and I realized she pointed to Eve and I was like, oh, it means something different, obviously. She says that Ray didn't fool around with women and that he was harmless. So we see a flashback of Ray playing cards with the Flannery brothers at the shop and the woman who was kidnapped in the beginning is walking around and joking with them. Back at the body farm, Rosa finds that the pollen they found was from apple blossom. The auto shop was a short ways away from an orchard and we see a flashback of the girl in the orchard and Ray watching her. They look up the orchard and see that Martin Flannery is the owner. He applied to build a halting site for, quote, travelers, a.k.a. what the people in the trailer park call themselves. And they relay this info to Eve, and the detective and Eve ask to see if Ray ever had a psych eval in prison. In a flashback, we see Ray running from the orchard, clearly upset. They find that Ray had an IQ of 80, and Eve, one of the techs, and the detective arrive at the orchard, and they find tire marks and send footage of this back to the body farm to Augie. Is this, does this, he had like high def footage, and he's sending it live to Augie, and Augie's able to like, he's like, all right, I'll try and get the tire treads from that. I'm sure that's real in this day and age, but that's crazy to me. I've, I've never seen that kind of tech. I feel like they could, but also the traditional way would just be to take the tire impression mm-hmm. and like have that mold to compare to something or like take a bunch of photos. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a CSI, I think that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. I because that's that's all I've ever seen. Yeah, but I thought it was, he's like, I'm going to send you some high def footage. And it kind of reminded me of Rosewood when he just pulls out his gadgets. gadgets. <laughs> the team gets suited up before entering the farmhouse on the property. They enter and NRN is detected, which is the chemical signature of a dead body. NRN is ninhydrin reactive nitrogen and can be used in looking for clandestine graves. 
They find handprints on the floor, and one looks like female. It's smaller than the other handprints and has long fingernails, like the ones that made the scratches on Ray's neck. It looks like the female was flailing about. Augie matches the car of the tire tracks to a Ford Transit, and they call Rosa and tell her to get back to the scene and work the Ford Transit at the auto shop for any forensic evidence. They find a silver bracelet with the name Amanda inscribed in it at the farmhouse, and they also find the jeweler's stamp on it. Augie looks up and says, It's Edward Worrell, who specializes in customized jewelry, and he sends Eve the address. In a flashback, we see Ray telling his mother that the scratches on his face are from Amanda, and Eileen says, She is only a child. You'll have to go now or they'll kill you. Back in the present, the detective says, There's no Amanda in missing persons. The detective and Eve go to the jeweler's house, and he answers the door nervously and says that they can't be there. He still invites them in, still acting nervous. They show him the bracelet, and he says that he made it for his daughter and demands to know where they got it. He says that, quote, they told him not to contact the police. He says someone kidnapped Amanda, and he thinks that's why they're there. The detective asks how they contacted Mr. Worrell, and he says they sent him a video of Amanda tied to a chair, saying, I'm not her, you just have to open up the shop and let them in. Just stay calm, and they will contact you. Don't contact the police, which we saw earlier in a flashback. He says he received it yesterday, and he saw her last around lunchtime yesterday, but she never came home for dinner. The detective asks about any of Amanda's friends to see who she might have gone to see yesterday, but he says he doesn't know because they have problems communicating. Her mother wouldn't know because they had been divorced. And we see Rosa arrive back at the auto shop scene. She finds NRN in the Ford Transit. She relays this info to the team, and they tell her to get the police to secure the whole property. Eve and the detective leave the world's house, and Eve asks to take a picture of Amanda and to take her laptop. Her dad says he couldn't look at it because it has a password. He tells Eve that sometimes she has problems with epilepsy, and Eve asks for an item of unwashed clothing or Amanda's pillowcase. At the auto shop scene, Rosa is processing the Ford Transit, and Mick comes up to see what she's doing, and she, he just like casually pulls his flannel out of the Ford Transit that she's like forensically investigating, and I'm just like, all right. Just then, the police all arrive, and the detective arrives, saying that he has a warrant for the building and all of the vehicles. The detectives say that they are looking for Amanda Worrell, and Mick says that they won't find her there. They also have, like, cadaver dogs searching, too, and the detective says that there's evidence that there was a body in the back of the Ford Transit, and that Mick is under arrest. So there are search dogs sniffing, like I just said, and Amanda's, they sniff Amanda's pillowcase before going into the shop to search for her. The dog does find Amanda's scent at the shop, but the dog doesn't go towards the Ford Transit. So that's not Amanda's NRN in that van. The dogs don't find Amanda at the auto shop, so Eve calls the tech that's still at the orchard and says that the orchard is most likely where she is. The tech then sees someone running through the orchard, and we see a flashback of Mick carrying Amanda's body through the orchard around the side of the little farmhouse slash shack that they're staying at. The tech sees birds gathering on the roof of the farmhouse and takes a ladder to get up there. He opens up a water tank at the top, and then he calls Eve to say that he found Amanda's body. Augie matches the boot prints from the auto shop, the transit, and the farmhouse to Mick Flannery. Also, the soil from Ray's clothes, the auto shop, the transit, and Mick's boots are all the same, and they're all contaminated with canine blood. Remember when Barney talked about his illegal dog fighting at the trailer park? 
The detective calls for backup to go to the trailer park, and Eve tells Rosa to go to the body farm to help prepare for Amanda's post-mortem exam. Initial exam of Amanda shows that there is extensive bruising to her body and injuries to the lower arms and wrists consistent with being restrained. Nothing external is seen as being the cause of death. There's no open wounds or puncture wounds. Then there's no bleeding. But her jaw is locked, suggesting that her death occurred during a severe muscle spasm. So we've talked about rigor a lot, and it's basically when your muscles tense up after death. And this happens because after death, you run out of ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate. And this is the source of energy for your cells. So if someone is exerting a lot of energy and using a lot of muscles in a certain area before they die, that area may go into rigor quicker. So Eve deduces that Amanda's jaw was clenched as she died, which is why it locked in rigor so quickly. Her airway is also blocked by her tongue, and Eve and the detective go to the trailer park and find where they had their dog fights. They think this might be where Ray was murdered. Eve says that because of all the rain they've had, the blood may have gone down to the subsoil and she won't need long to get her samples. She calls Augie at the farm and tells her she needs him to find out how much saturation would happen after a heavy rain on soil with no grass. And he is at like a pre-made grave at the farm and you can like see the soil depth and how much, how far blood would move in the soil after certain amounts of rain. It was so cool. So he says to look for an accumulation of four to six inches into the topsoil. I just thought this was so cool because it shows the types of work that body farms can do. And body farms, we've talked about before, they research how bodies decompose in a variety of settings, and this can be useful in forensics, but they also do stuff like this. Like, they could figure out where to look for blood or, like, where to look for clandestine graves and stuff. It's so cool. I find it fascinating. I want to go to the actual body farm so badly. I want to go to the Forensic Anthropology Center in Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, I want to go so bad. It'd be so cool. It's on my bucket list to do, like, a, an internship or a program there or something. So Eve follows Augie's instruction and finds a lot of blood within that area and collects her samples. She runs it and finds that it is human blood and it's a match for Raekwon. So he bled out at the trailer park and a lot of people probably witnessed it. At Amanda's autopsy, they find that there is a lot of cross-contamination between Amanda and Ray's body. So they believe that Mick put Amanda's body in the tank. His footprints are in the shack slash farmhouse and they retract to the tank base. They also get a hit for semen on the rape kit that they ran for Amanda, and they thought it would belong to Ray, but they find that it belongs to a Flannery brother, but not Mick or Martin, so they're hiding a third brother, possibly the young male that the tech saw running through the orchard earlier. In a flashback, we do see a third younger brother at the shop, and he was dating Amanda. They believe that the trailer park is hiding the third Flannery brother, so the detective tells them that they are all involved in a cover-up of a girl's murder, and he will arrest all of them if he has to. We see Barney make a call and tell someone to, quote, get down there quick. At the body farm, Augie opened Amanda's laptop and found photos of her with a boy who is the third Flannery brother named Danny. He sends the photos over to the detective, and Eve goes to ask Eileen what she knows. Eileen says that she didn't see Ray beaten outside because it was, quote, man's business, and a woman wasn't allowed to see it. We see a flashback of Ray telling his mother in the trailer park that he was only trying to help Amanda. Then the men from the community come outside and call Ray to come out and fight Martin. Eileen tells Ray that there's no use in running and that he has to go out and fight, but that he can take on Martin because he's, quote, soft. Eileen in present day says that no crime was committed and that her son lost a fair fight to another man. 
Eve tells Eileen that the fight shouldn't have even happened because Ray didn't kill Amanda. Amanda died from an epileptic fit. Eve says Eileen's son was innocent of murder, but Eileen says that there was a witness who swore on a Bible that Ray did it. And we see a flashback of the fight, and Martin only hit Ray a few times before he started vomiting up blood, and Ray didn't even have a chance to hit back. Remember, he had a cirrhotic liver that was ready to burst, so as soon as he was hit in the stomach, right, or an abdomen where your liver would be, he bled. Mick says that he'll deal with the body, and Ray deserved this because he killed a girl. So back in present day, they find Danny at the trailer park, and Eileen comes out and slaps him and calls him a liar. She says that Danny bore false witness against her son, because he was the one that swore on the Bible, and that Ray was innocent. So things are getting out of hand at the trailer park, and Martin shows up and says that they can't take Danny because he's only 16. He also says the fight between him and Ray was a fair fight and that he didn't mean to kill him. Back at the body farm, all the Flannery brothers are being interrogated, which was an interesting choice to interrogate them, like, at the body farm. Not, like, the police precincts. Yeah. Martin says Danny told him that Ray killed Amanda, so Martin was just roughing him up so that he would turn himself in. He didn't expect him to go down after a couple of blows. Mick confesses to moving Ray's body to the auto shop since he was supposed to be working that night, so it would look like he just died there. He also says he moved Amanda's body to the water tower, or the water tank, not like a water tower, like really high up. It was a water tank on top of the farmhouse. The detective then shows the brothers, I'm sorry, I just got lost in thought, how did he carry Amanda's body up a ladder? He did it alone, I think. Did he like haul her By himself. over his shoulder? That's still, that's a lot. Climbing, because there was, there were no like stairs to get up there. Yeah, you had to climb a ladder. Damn. Sorry, I just lost my place in our little script that we have because I was just trying to figure out the logistics of him trying to carry a body up to the roof. Back from my train of thought, the detective then shows the brothers Amanda's hostage footage, which was downloaded from Danny's phone. It shows that Amanda and Danny were working together to stage her kidnapping and get money from her dad. Martin and Mick had no idea about this. Danny says that Amanda's father wouldn't let them be together and that he wanted to run away from his brothers. He says he doesn't like the traveler lifestyle and that he never wanted them to fight Ray for him. He expected his brothers to go to the police when he told them about Amanda. Danny says Ray wasn't involved in the fake kidnapping. Danny says that he went to an internet cafe to send the ransom message to her dad and when he came back he saw Ray running from the house and he found Amanda inside dead. We see a flashback of Amanda having an epileptic fit and Ray trying to help her. When he realizes she's dead, he runs from the shack scared. Martin says he killed an innocent man, but that it isn't Danny's fault. He should have gone to the police, and then none of this would have happened. Danny then asks to see Amanda's body, and they just bring him. This He's like 16, and they're just like, yeah, come see your dead girlfriend. They bring him to her, and I, so I'm just going to give it a red flag, because I feel like he shouldn't have just been brought back yeah they shouldn't have just let him he was like over her body like crying yeah also the episode doesn't end with like an arrest or anything like we don't see anybody arrested i'm assuming martin got arrested for murder he confessed to like killing ray by hitting him maybe it's misdemeanor because it was a consensual fight and it was just i don't know 
but no and we don't see anybody get arrested it kind of ends with two people from the body farm saying that they're going to continue doing forensic work even though they don't have to anymore because they have enough money to sustain the farm but they're like we're going to do forensic works because we like it the end i feel like it could have ended a lot better there was a lot happening or like with some type of justice being served right even though like her death was natural her death was natural his death was definitely they could have charged martin for killing him and mick he hid two bodies right <laughs> they're not gonna do anything he interfered that. he moved a body to be found and then hid a 17 year old girl's body in a water tank <laughs> like someone should be charged I'm just saying. I know. But the water tank, that was particularly something that stuck out to us in this episode, that her body was found, Amanda's body was found in the water tank. And that made us think of a very well-known case, the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. If you don't know this case, there's a whole bunch out there. Netflix did a whole documentary series on it. I reference it in the script. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold on. What? This episode aired before Elisa Lamb. <gasps> this episode aired in 2011. She went missing in 2013. Spooky. I thought it would have been after. I thought it was too similar. I thought it would have had to have been after. Lisa was a 21-year-old Canadian student who disappeared in 2013 while staying at the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles while traveling alone in the U.S. A video of Elisa was recovered from the hotel shortly after she disappeared, showing her inside an elevator. The elevator doors didn't close, and it appeared that she was talking to someone who the cameras didn't see. She jumped in and out of the elevator several times before jumping out one final time never being seen again. 19 days later, Elisa's body was found in a water tank on the hotel's roof after guests at the hotel complained about decreased water pressure and the smell to the water in their rooms. The surveillance video had led a lot of people to believe conspiracy theories surrounding Elisa's tragic death. So, like I said, there's a documentary that Netflix released in 2021 titled The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, and the director, Joe Berlinger, stated that one of the reasons he wanted to make this series was to set the conspiracy theorists straight. He said, This story has been told before, but I think it's been done very irresponsibly in the past. For the average viewer, it's another compelling story you watch and then move on to the next. But for who this happened to, it's the worst moment in their life. It's a real tragedy for that person and that family. I think about that a lot. It's something we've discussed before. Like we, when we covered, we talked about Ted Bundy. We were talking about it from the point of view of the victims. And it was just like, this is just something like people are morbidly fascinated. And so they get sucked into a rabbit hole of like a true crime story. But like, he's right. These are real people. This is a real tragedy. And we have to be respectful. The ghost stories were partly driven by web detectives who worked online to try to piece together the story of what happened to Elisa. The Cecil Hotel in 2013 already had a bad reputation before Elisa's death. It had a history of suicides, overdoses. It was a location of where several high-profile serial killers like Richard Ramirez and Jack Unterberger, they stayed there. That was also an inspiration for American Horror Story Hotel. And after Elisa's disappearance, the fingers were pointed at residents and the hotel staff, which Amy Price, the hotel manager in 2013, says was stressful and heartbreaking. Amy went on to say, 
From the beginning, Elisa went missing. I just had a bad feeling about it. She was traveling alone, and I really thought that she must have gotten mixed up with the wrong crowd, and that wouldn't be hard to do in downtown Los Angeles. According to Elisa's family, she never had any suicidal ideations, but she did have a history of not taking her bipolar medications, which sometimes led to hallucinations, which would have caused her to hide under her bed sometimes during these episodes. At autopsy, there was no evidence of physical trauma or sexual assault or suicide. Toxicology showed traces consistent with her medications, which were found among her belongings, and no other recreational drugs were found other than a small amount, which was 0.02 gram percent of alcohol. However, investigators noted the amounts of her prescription drugs in her system, and this seemed to indicate that she was under-medicating or she'd stopped her medications recently. The investigation also questioned how she was able to access the rooftop water tank in the first place since the doors and stairs to the roof were supposed to be locked with only employees having access, and any attempt to force open the door would trigger an alarm in the hotel. However, someone had tested this theory after Elisa's death and found that the roof was accessible from the fire escape. I think it was one of the like web sleuths, like web detectives. Like, yeah, I remember I watched. Yeah. I watched this documentary, so and it was definitely one of the like the web people. They went to go stay there, and they were testing out all these different theories they had. Yeah, and they could go to the roof. Yeah, they t- they like took a video of themselves and posted it. Like, oh, I can get to the roof if I go out my fire escape. Yeah. Another question that arose during the investigation was how Elisa was able to get into the water tank by herself. All four tanks on the roof were four by eight cylinders propped on concrete blocks with no easy access to them. Workers would have to bring ladders to get inside. The lids to the tank were protected with heavy lids that would have been difficult to replace from within. The hotel worker who found Elisa's body in the tank did say that the lid was open when he arrived. In September of 2013, Elisa's parents filed a wrongful death suit against the hotel, claiming that the hotel failed to, quote, inspect and seek out hazards in the hotel that presented an unreasonable risk of danger to Lamb and other hotel guests. The hotel argued that it could not have reasonably foreseen that Lamb might have entered the water tanks, and since it remained unknown how Lamb got into the tank, no liability could be assigned for failing to prevent it and the suit was dismissed in 2015. So we got all this information from a BBC News article titled Elisa Lamb, What Really Happened at the Cecil Hotel by Michael Braggs, as well as a wiki page for Elisa Lamb, both of which will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more. This, I think I first heard about this case on My Favorite Murder, which we've talked about a few times. (laughs) And I was definitely one of those people who like fell down the rabbit hole of like the ghost stories and conspiracy theories because like the Cecil, like I knew about the Cecil Hotel. Cecil Hotel is like in infamous because of Richard Ramirez and Jack Unterwerger staying there like I knew about it from that and I knew it just had a bad reputation and so it did become kind of like a ghost story and I mean like seeing American Horror Story Hotel kind of just like makes it into the it doesn't say that it's the Cecil Hotel per se in American Horror Story but everybody knows it's based off of it Mm -hmm. yeah so I definitely have to catch myself in those moments and like while like the the director Joe Berlinger said like for viewers it's like it's one interest for you, and then you move on to the next one. But for someone, this is a very personal tragedy. This this one just sucks. This one's a 
we didn't get like no one gets a definite answer but i know there's still like nobody has any answers there's no like new update to the case it's still unknown what exactly happened Mm -hmm. to her yeah it's like i can understand why so many people are interested in it because the less I feel like the less details people get, it's kind of Mm -hmm. like the, I was talking about the diet love pass a couple of episodes ago, like the less information people get, the more they fill it in, in their heads with like crazy theories. And it just spirals. People like bounce ideas off of each other. Like, oh, I think this happened. Oh, I think this happened. And then it just like spirals and you get like the internet sleuths and the web detectives all thinking they have the right theory or they know what happened. And yeah. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of three green flags and two red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Body Farm does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you might have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.